I'm going to try my very best to try and stop at nine o'clock so that the uh, last retreat I did here, I told the fellow who was next to the um, the controls of the the lights, at nine o'clock you can turn the lights out. <laughs> so I have to stop. The first day there's not so many. So here we go. Very good. When meditating, I am aware of bodily sensations, tightness, pressure, tingling in my chest, solar plexus. Oh my goodness, having a heart attack. (laughs) (laughs) No, don't be worried about such things. Paying attention to these, my awareness can release these tensions. Great. But it means my mind never settles on one point. Don't rush it. It does settle on one point, and after a while, you're just doing the preparations. So you relax things. And also, the one-pointedness of mind, the ekagata, the real translation of that, because one of the nice things about being a monk with a brain, that you know, I, could, I already knew my, my Latin at school, so I could learn the Pali pretty easily. And ekagata means one not point of mind, it's an aga, it's a peak of mind. In the same way that many of you may not know the Pali word, no, aga meaning the peak, but I think many of you know agra, agra in India, home of the Taj Mahal, that was the head of the Mughal Empire in India. It was the peak, the capital. And so when we talk about agata, it means one peak of the mind, not just an ordinary, not just one pointedness, one peak of the mind. And anyway, this is what will happen. And so you aware of the sensations yet you relax those, and then what happened is that your body disappears. I don't know about you, I've had my body for several seventy one years. It's a pain. <laughs> and so when the body really relaxes and you can't feel anything at all, it all vanishes, which is brilliant. And then you can get into the one peakedness of the mind, not with the body. Next question. I am able to process past traumas through the use of meta meditation. Am I able, instead of seeking professional help? I am a professional. <laughs> <laughs> it really depends. Honestly, sometimes I just wonder about... Are there any psychologists here, by the way? I don't want to get into trouble. <laughs> but past traumas. You know, I remember just a wonderful um, piece of research was done some years ago. There was a big train crash outside of Paddington Station in in London. Several people were killed and as many injuries. But about one or two years after the event, there was a very sort of courageous psychologist decided to check all those people who had trauma counselling and all those people who didn't. And those people who had the counselling compared to those people who didn't have the counselling, those who didn't have the counselling did better. (laughs) And they tried to, you know, accommodate those people who were just, you know, tough or whatever, or they didn't see so much. No, it was nothing to do with that at all. Sometimes when you're asked to get some of your past traumas coming up, sometimes you're reinforcing that. Instead of being able to just let it go and let it disappear, it's not suppressing it. There are other ways to deal with such things. And... Somebody asked me this in the last retreat. They had you know, uh, experienced some very big traumas. And I 
was referring them to this incredible meditation. It was based on the opening the door of your heart stories. I keep on mentioning this, I think I've mentioned it to many places. It was the uh, Australian Society of Survivors of Torture and Trauma. And this was people who had really gone through some of the worst forms of hell in underground military places throughout the world, being tortured, raped, beaten. And so many times that they survived was a miracle. But that they managed to get sort of a refugee visa to come to Australia where they could be physically safe. But they had this immense trauma there. So they could be physically safe, but their minds were still being tortured, raped, beaten in these underground cells that hadn't been dealt with yet. And these psychologists who you know, come to our centre in Nonamara on a Friday night, they sort of invited me to go to their centre just to visit. Not to teach them anything, but I was just really blown away by what they had done with some simple teachings like opening the door of your heart. To say it in brief, when the uh, traumatised person was ready, it had to be when they felt safe. That's one of the most important parts of getting some peace, feeling safe. It's one of the reasons why I don't think I've ever shouted at anybody in this a retreat centre. And if you say I have, I will... <laughs> no, I never have. Because you want everyone to feel safe in this place. You don't have to come to the morning meetings, afternoon meetings, evening meetings, or anything at all. The kindness is there to make you feel confident and at ease in this place. So you can meditate however much you want, or not at all if you wish. But anyway, I mean that. And so when they felt safe, then they were asked to do this uh, visualization, loving kindness. They were sitting, usually in a chair, and then they were just asked to close their eyes and just relax and imagine in their chest it's these two big doors, like you know, the two big doors behind me here. And imagine those doors opening out. And inside is the part of you, the part of your life you feel comfortable with. Because when people have been traumatized, there's a huge amount of hurt there. But there are other moments where they feel at ease, kind of happy. Memories of just beautiful times they've experienced. Or maybe just recent times coming to a place like Australia and having this wonderful sense of freedom. But anyway, they open the, the door up and inside is those people who bear your name, you, who haven't been hurt. They're inside your heart already. It's easy to live with them. But then you look out the other side of the door, on the ground, in the cold, in the rain, rejected, stigmatized, all those little yous as a kid who was beaten, please excuse me, but you know, raped for no reason at all. You couldn't do anything about it. You saw other people experience the same. You've been traumatized. And they're outside. The beautiful part of this little story is to know that if you want to open the door of your heart to everything, the unconditional loving-kindness. So imagine a little ladder or steps coming down from where you're standing inside your heart, the part of you it's easy to live with, and those steps go down to the ground, and you shout for all those little years from the past, You'd rather you never experience those things, but they're out there. And you say, you know, me, who was so badly abused, come up the stairs, come in. And of course, it takes a lot of courage and tears 
we invite that little boy who was beaten for no reason at all. Maybe your relation was drunk or people who have been arrested for protesting about this or whatever. Now, trying to stand up for the rights of others and for yourself and just tortured, electrocuted. All those little people. Some of the stories which you hear, they're true. How anyone could stand that. They had no choice. They stood it. But unfortunately they survived physically. But you invite all of those little yous to come up when they come to the stop of the stairs. I will never keep you out again. You're part of me. You're who I am. And it's a very cathartic um, change happens. Instead of trying to negate that part of you, you bring it in. And you embrace it. And it takes, obviously, many sessions to get all those little yous outside in the cold and bring them inside of your heart. But that is a huge amount of healing. You're not rejecting it, neglecting it, thinking it didn't happen, trying to find a place where you can escape from these things. You bring everything inside. And of course, you know, to see people who've done that. I mean, the story I usually say, because I, could, I won't ever forget this, there was one of these women, I'm not quite sure what country she came from, and she was telling one of the young men I was supposed to be speaking to somebody else or asking questions, but I was mostly listening to her, what she was saying, just incredible stuff she'd been through. And then the young man she was talking to, that young man said, that's terrible what you've been through. That's a normal thing we'd say. And this woman said, no, you've got no right to say that. That's who I am. Stop so stigmatising it. And just the way she said that, she had so much power. She was way beyond sort of, you know, the, the pain and the humiliation of such torture. It was incredible how she was free. She wasn't that, not tormented by that anymore. And that was really impressive. So that type of uh, meta-meditation. You know, you don't just, may all beings be happy and well, may I be happy and well. That's nice. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. That's good. But it's not as powerful if you take the heart of it, adapt it, and make it work in such a way. I was really proud of those psychologists who adapted that and made it work. Absolutely brilliant. Anyway... That's, um, please excuse me for that, but that was really quite important, inspiring for me to see that. Meta-meditation, seeking professional help, that's both, because these are professionals who teach that meta-meditation. So yeah, seek professional help, because there's not that many monks or nuns around. <laughs> it will traumatise us. <laughs> Okay, thanks for that question. I understand from this morning's teaching that letting be is what is left after you let go of desires, etc. Yeah. Please let me know if I understood it correctly. Good enough. <laughs> That's why Ajahn Chah used to say, said, you're right, but not correct. <laughs> you're correct, but not right. <laughs> Because there's much more to it than that, obviously. You let go of desires, etc. And what's, you let what's left be. But it doesn't just stay like that. It just grows. It's like a cake or like bread which rises and gets bigger and bigger and more fragrant. I shouldn't talk about bread at this time of night. <laughs> <laughs> I suddenly became hungry. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, so 
I hope that it's good enough. I hope that the next sessions will include further clarification on how ill will and loving kindness are connected to letting go and letting be. Oh, certainly that ill will is you know you trying to get somewhere where that pain isn't, trying to get rid of things, curing things. If you have something inside of you that's giving you a lot of problems or difficulties or situations in your life which are difficult or you're just fed up being here, you've heard all these stories and jokes before, crikey, can't actually unbound with something new. <laughs> don't try and cure. So don't try and cure anything. Care for it. You're replacing ill will with kindness. And it works amazingly. I don't know if any of you have ever adopted like a dog or a little cat or some animal who's so rejected by everybody and smiles at you. And instead of trying to cure it of its bad habits, you just care, oh, you poor thing. I don't know what's happened to you to make you like that. You care for it so much, and then all this bad behavior goes. You don't cure it of its bad behavior. You care for it. You find it doesn't need that bad behavior anymore. Anyway, there's so much about that. It's a wonderful thing to, to reflect upon. And loving kindness, yeah, of course. We care, not cure. Curing is ill will. Cure all your defilements. That's one. Okay, I thought this story. Here we go. There was once most senior monk. I think it was that John. Have you got rid of your all your defilements yet? He said, "Oh no, not yet." Then the next monk, have you got rid of all your defilements yet? He said, "Oh no, not yet." And another monk, how about you? He said, "Oh no, not yet." Should I say this? No, it's Ajahn Ganha. He said, have you got rid of your defilements yet? He said, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come upstairs. <laughs> so he took Ajahn Ganha upstairs. <laughs> no, I shouldn't have said that, should I? Anyway, I said it anyway. <laughs> anyway. Let's get this one. We've got to move on. Thank you, Ajahn, for sharing your time, wisdom, and energy with us. It's not my time. It's not my energy. It's not my wisdom. I take no responsibility for it. When you think you own things, you get possessive. You can get pride, pride, sorry, proud or ashamed. But when you don't own anything, can you be proud? Giving my time? It's not my time. <laughs> Whose time is it? You know when you meditate, how many of you become prisoners of time? 8.20, oh, I better rush. <laughs> <laughs> I've got to beat my record. I've only sat five minutes. My goodness, I need to sit more. So please, just don't worry about tomorrow or yesterday or how many minutes you've been meditating. Don't be a prisoner of time. It creates so much suffering, wanting. Here, you're just here. Yeah, but I've got to go home. Who knows whether you can ever go home after this retreat? Who knows when this retreat's going to end? We might get in a time loop. We keep going around and saying, no, what's that Groundhog Day? You wake up, and it's not um, Sunday morning, it's Saturday morning again. <laughs> you may never get out of this loop. You may be doing this for a long time already. <laughs> I'm messing with your minds. <laughs> Especially the wisdom bit. Because many years ago, when I was giving one of the first really big talks, and that was over in Suntech City, there's a convention center over in Singapore, to about three or 4,000 people. 
And it was just myself giving a talk. No, no support act, no backing group. Just, you know, you get up on the stage and you're facing all these people. They've taken their evening off to listen to you give a talk. And you know, for a moment there, I wasn't scared of like a failure or anything. I was actually scared more of success. What happens if people really like you? The pride and arrogance, they were really dangerous. And I've seen many sort of monks and teachers get lost in that pride and arrogance. And then the way I sort of reflected, and it took all that sort of fear of pride and fear of like, I think it's my wisdom away, was when I realized that any wisdom which I had had all come from my teachers, especially in Ajahn Chah. I realized that I wasn't giving the talk, Ajahn Chah was giving the talk. And that was the mindset I had when I went up on the stage there and started talking. I was not responsible for that talk at all. It was Ajahn Chah. So from that time on, you never think of it as my wisdom. It bears my name, but it's not mine. So if I make a mistake, I just blame Ajahn Chah. <laughs> Any prayer, that's what we do here. Any uh, criticism on this retreat, that goes to the retreat manager, which is Norlia. So she gets all the criticism. Any praise comes up here. <laughs> is Norlia here? Yes, she is. In Ajahn Chah's simile of the stick, what does heavy refer to in relation to meditation practice? Is your meditation going well? Is it a struggle? Is it heavy? It's only the first day, but wait till close to the last day. Close to the last day, and afterwards, the day after the last day, you can talk to other people and they ask you, how was your meditation? Oh, it was kind of okay. But you know, it was hopeless. It was terrible. And actually, for those of you here, you know, you have to pay a booking bond to come here. And so you're wasting all your money coming here. So I'm oh, better do something with this. Some of you come from overseas or over from Melbourne. It's going to be very embarrassing you come here and you just totally wasted your time. So it gets heavier and heavier the more you want, and the more embarrassed you have, you get. <laughs> and especially that some of you have to take time off from work, and you go back to your workplace, and you know, they say, what did you do? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be very embarrassing. <laughs> so, Meditation is not heavy, but you can make it heavy when you're really wanting something. You want to impress other people. That's a pretty easy one to overcome, impressing other people. But many of you want to impress yourself. And that's a hopeless thing to do. You can always get more. What, you've only got third jhana? Come on, Prem, how long have you been coming here? <laughs> So the heavy is what you make it, because the stick. But it's nice to say the longer you hold it, so you've got a worry or a concern in your life or your meditation practice, and you keep on holding it, and it gets heavier and heavier and heavier. But it's also, that's one of those similes for um, stress in life. Are you stressed out in life? The answer to stress is so easy. How heavy is the cup? The longer I hold it, the heavier it feels. You know, there's this politician came on the stage in Perth. It was uh, one of the Thai functions, the uh, one of the water festivals there. No, Songkran, the, where they put boats in the river and floated them down there with their wishes for the next year. But anyway, she came up and said. <laughs> I couldn't help laughing. She said, I heard this <coughs> I heard this from a wise man. 
<laughs> she said. She said, holding a cup, the longer you hold it, the heavier it feels. And so once it starts to get too heavy to, feel, to hold comfortably, you put it down. And that's the answer to stress. When you're working hard, you keep working, working, working. When it gets too heavy to actually to do comfortably, put it down, take a break for five or ten minutes. I, I couldn't resist but telling her afterwards, that's my simile. <laughs> <laughs> but I was actually quite happy to see politicians saying something wise for a change. So that's what heaviness is. Hold it too long. You don't know how to let go. And when you know to let go, put it down. Nothing is heavy. Am I heavy? <laughs> a really nice woman came today and said she remembered me from many years ago. I know about four or five years ago, I think. Going over, I think it was going over to Indonesia somewhere. She was an Indonesian. And she said, you've got thinner, Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, you can come and stay here. <laughs> when do you want to come back again? <laughs> Dear Ajahn Brahm, my brother left home and didn't want to keep in contact for 11 years. When Dad was dying, we got the police to inform him of this. He didn't come to see Dad or attend his funeral. He also didn't want the inheritance that Dad left him. For years, I always wonder how he is. Sometimes I feel angry that he is so insensitive. I want to finish and close this chapter in my life. I don't want to worry uh, him about anymore, worry about him anymore, or keep wondering if he's still alive. Thank you. But everybody lives in their own little world, and so sometimes. He's obviously been very firm to make that um, uh, separation you know, from you, hasn't kept in contact for 11 years. All you can do is actually always keep loving kindness towards him. When we do sharing of loving kindness, you can think of him and just, you know, wherever you are, brother, I wish you happiness and well-being. Don't ever take it personally. Why people do these things, I'm not sure. Oh, why he didn't want to come and see his, his dad. But sometimes that happens. People just have some bad experiences and they feel they just need to cut that off and start another life. So anyway, your chapter in your life, no matter where you go or how old you are, he's still your brother somewhere in this world. So just every time you do a... Uh, even if it's his birthday, I don't know if you were really close to him, if it was his birthday, sometimes what you can do is just, whatever he would like to do, just give a donation to that charity. If you like dogs, like to the dog's home or something, or whatever. Something you can remember, do something good in his memory. Even though he may never know that, he may not need it, but you do need to do it. You don't need to cut him off totally, but just don't worry. That's the best thing you can do. Dear Ajahn, how can we keep showing love and care to colleagues, family and friends who don't reciprocate the same mutual respect? Wear them down. <laughs> it's adapting the words of the British Prime Minister, Margaret Thatcher. She said that some colleagues on the Cabinet she wears down, some she beats down, some she grinds down. <laughs> <laughs> the same sort of idea, but with no positive <laughs> energy. Love and care to colleagues, family and friends who don't reciprocate the same mutual respect. You can still love someone even if they don't love you. And, okay, one of those lovely, you know, the true stories are the ones which mean the most to me because they're not exaggerated, they're real. A similar question was asked by one of the prisoners up in Carnot Prison Farm when I used to go visit there regularly. And we said that some people, it's a waste of time giving love and kindness to some people. And I said, no, it's not. He said, yeah, it is. And I said, okay, look, he was a prisoner inside the Carnot Prison Farm. Which person in this jail do you hate the most? 
he didn't hesitate. He said, the senior police officer, a senior prison officer. He really is, a, they called him a dog. And he said, it's a typical thing he did. One of the prisoners over there, a kind of prison farm up the road, it's very difficult to get to. There's no public transport. Port. So one day, one of the prisoner's wife managed to get a lift to go and see her husband. But before you just um, can see the husband, you've got to put your name down, check in, go through some sort of security, and then they'll call the prisoner, and your wife has come. So that's what they did. They put on the PA system. But before they could go through that preliminaries, the senior, police, senior prison officer saw this prisoner's wife had come, and just on purpose sent him on some errand on the other side of the prison where the PA system doesn't reach. Um, prisoner Brown, your wife has come. Prisoner Brown, please come to the waiting area. Your wife has come. Prison when they actually found him, I'm terribly sorry, the visiting hours are over. In other words, it just means things like that. So they said, great, we have a contest. Because this prison uh, prisoner, one of his jobs, he was, you know, kind of middle-aged, so one of his jobs was to serve the tea and coffee to the staff in the admin offices. And so I said, wonderful. Every time you give a cup of tea or coffee to this dog... <laughs> now, smile at him. Try and make the best cup of tea or coffee you can. And keep on doing that, see what happens. Of course, I think many of you know the story, but... He did that for about three months, every day. You know, here's your tea, sir, I hope you like it. The prison officer would totally ignore him, like he didn't exist. But then, <laughs> it makes me happy because one day we got our breakthrough. I went to the prison, he said, you wouldn't guess what happened. I made him a cup of coffee, I got some biscuits. And so I offered him the biscuits and a cup of coffee. And he said, here's some coffee and biscuits, sir. Ugh. <laughs> just that grunt just shocked everybody <laughs> yeah he nodded you were there he said yeah okay that's the crack in the damn wall I'm sure that the, the rest will come pretty quickly which he did after another month he found some special biscuits and special tea or something which the prison officer liked here you are sir I found this for you I hope you enjoy it he was always very nice when he's talking to the prison officer and the prison officer turned around and said, thank you. Well, apparently, that thank you went all around the prison grapevine in Western Australia, and they couldn't believe that that actually happened. It took about five months. <laughs> we had nothing else to do in prison. So it <laughs> but it does work. So you can wear them down. Ajahn Brahm, how do we, how, how can we be both mindful and relaxed at the same time? I don't know how you can be mindful and not relaxed, or uh, not relaxed and be mindful. Because the real mindfulness becomes very natural, really relaxed and effortless, and then it becomes powerful. You can't stop it. These are like those powerful mindfulness, which I love talking about because not many people talk about them. It's when, you know, you have a nice meditation and you open your eyes and you see the bamboo floor in front of you. It's like a work of art. You see all the different shades of brown on there and how they're all formed together. And little knots. Those knots have so many different um, shades of the, you know, the yellows and the brown and how it all sort of uh, blends together. When you're very mindful, you see so much more beautiful in places you've never seen before. And it's natural, you can't fake it. You can't say, oh, that looks very beautiful. Yeah, that's all right, no, it doesn't. When it really looks beautiful, you can, I can just stare at it for, for a long time. One of the first times that happened to me Actually, not the first time, but when I was doing walking meditation in the concrete 
flawed hall over in northeast Thailand. It was, it was laid by the villagers. They weren't really good at laying the concrete, thank goodness, because the concrete had lots of nice contours and different shades of grey and dark. And just, it, I was just walking there, just looking a few feet in front of me as I was walking. I had to stop, literally. I'm not um, making this up. I just couldn't move. It was just incredibly beautiful. And, you know, you th see something that's beautiful like that, just this old concrete floor. Apparently they put tiles on it now. It's desecration. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I just wanted to cut it out and send it to the Tate Gallery in London. <laughs> it was gorgeous. But it only looked like that when I was mindful. When my mind was just busy doing other things, just the beauty just disappeared. It's the same as a piti sukha, which you see with the breath when it gets really nice. And that only happens when you're really relaxed and you can let go. And you're not wasting your energy with striving and struggling or trying to hold on to something. I tend to space out when I'm relaxed at my level of awareness. Space out. And then you'll find the mindfulness will continue to grow and the spacey outness of your mind will start to disappear. And you'll be just beautifully uh, mindful, with no effort at all. It's like a default state. Oh my goodness. A, B, uh, two questions. When you do walking meditation, do you concentrate on the lifting and sending forward and depositing of your feet on the ground and repeating the process? Or you concentrate on contact on your feet with the air or the hard element of earth. As there are different opinions, can't enlighten me on this. When you do walking meditation, you focus on the walking. Keep it simple. One of the things which you notice, which I do, I never wear socks. If you do walking meditation, please take your socks off. Now, if you can, if, you know, if you've got bad feet or something, or you're going to stink the place out, keep your socks on. <laughs> <laughs> We have these mats in there. We've seen the mats in the walking meditation hall. They're mostly red carpets. Actually, red yoga mats. But when they asked what colour, I said red. Like red carpet to make sure that you realise that walking meditation is beautiful. And when you start walking, walk naturally. But what does walking actually mean? How many muscles do you have to... To, to move, just to lift a foot. And what's the first part of your foot which comes off from the ground? What's the last part? Does your foot then move vertically up and then forward and then down again like some robot? I know my ones, it just goes back a bit. And it goes in like an arc forward. And then it goes down. How do you walk? Once you become aware of just the process of walking, that's enough. If you try and do the concentrate on the lifting, sending forward and depositing your feet and repeating it, that is just too, um, too planned. To see just how you walk, and not just you know, lifting going forward, but just a whole process of just one step like a continuous process. And after a while it becomes fascinating, like a dancer. And when a dancer just moves, they know just so many parts of their body have to you know, work together just to make these amazing steps. But it gets like quite consuming all your mindfulness. And it gets fascinating. And also, here we go again, the mindfulness when it goes up gets beautiful. You're enjoying yourself. You're not having to focus. It's just it's, it's fascinating. And of course, the story which is coming now is my usual story about walking meditation. Doing this in Bangkok, in this meditation hall, in this monastery. And then I was really getting into it. You get very still, like you're in your own little world there, and it's very pleasant. And then I heard, you now from a distance, 
Brahma Wang So it's like hearing like psychic um, noises from distant places. It's like a long way away. Brahma Wang So. <laughs> and so I stopped looking at the the feet, and I realised there was a monk shouting in my ear. <laughs> was right next to me trying to get my attention. It was hard to get my attention because he was so absorbed into the, you know, the beautiful experience of walking meditation. It really showed me just what actually happened. I forgot I was supposed to go to an, a, a, a dana and the other monks had sent this monk to come and get me. It took a while to get me out of you know, the, the stillness and the, the beauty of that type of meditation. But anyway, it got me out eventually, but it showed me just how deep you can get in walking meditation. Gorgeous. Thank you, Ajahn. I am blessed to be here. This is my first time at Jhana Grove and the first time for walking meditation. Is there a mantra for walking meditation to start with? Yeah, there is. Uh, left, right, left, <laughs> right. <laughs> Sorry, I'm in a silly mood. Actually, I think I was born in the city, but haven't got out of it yet. <laughs> so, uh, sometimes you can do mantras if you wish, but that's taking your attention away from the actual action of walking. So I would just be quiet. Put your attention, just the body length in front of you. That is important, so you don't step on anything. You feel safe, you don't bump into the walls. And... Then when you get to the end, you turn around and go back again. The nice thing about walking meditation is you don't get anywhere. You just go over there and come back again. <laughs> Instead of going somewhere, you learn how to be. Instead of get somewhere. And go inside. I'll give some more instructions about that afterwards. Can you please explain Sampajanya Sati and how this applies to our practice? Sampajanya is just a Pali word. It means Sam means with, and Pajanya is the same as Panya. You know, when we have these words in Pali or even English, we actually contract them, and it's just easier to say. So it literally does mean with wisdom, mindfulness with wisdom. How it applies to our practice? Yes, we want to be mindful, but we don't want to be mindful so we can shoot bullets bullets straight in the U.S. Marines. That's not a very that might be sati, but it's not sampajanya. So, oh, hi, we've got another part to the question. For example, if I'm eating an apple, is it correct for me to observe that the, the apple is sweet, but to also not form craving to it, sampajanya? Why are you eating the apple? That's part of the sampajanya. Why? What are you doing with it? Eating the apple, notice, to feed yourself. And with food, if it's not delicious, if it doesn't form even a little bit of craving, then you will find that your saliva won't be secreted and all the other stuff which is used to, to digest the apple will not be secreted. You get bad digestion. Food is supposed to be delicious. If it's not, you get very bad digestions. Even the Buddha ate delicious food. So not the craving for it in the sense I want it, but you notice it's delicious and that will help your digestion. Even in many monasteries in the world, remember that uh, a Heiji monastery that was on the east coast, no, the west coast of Japan, and it was such a tough monastery. Remember seeing the um, some of the videos of it. Work really hard, bathe in water which was just no, zero degrees, work really hard, and uh, if you just got sleepy in your meditation, you got hit in the back with a Zen stick. So it was a tough monastery, but they said they'd always make sure, the Dogen, the founder, always made sure you got delicious food. They said that you did need that delicious food to digest it properly. So, so you understand, Sambhajana means with wisdom. You know, with the food, you know, yes, it's going to be delicious. Is the food here delicious? 
So shall I tell the cooks to actually to make it less delicious for you? <laughs> <laughs> now the food has to be delicious to keep you healthy so you can meditate without you know, too much problems. But I would say to you that if you do have problems with your digestion, please sit at the back. <laughs> because if you've got bad digestion, you pass a lot of wind and you're sitting in the front, then all the people behind you would have to suffer. <laughs> so now you know why the people who sit in the back. <laughs> no, i joking. So the Sampajana means with the wisdom. For the monks and nuns, we do a reflection why we eat. Not for fun, not for fattening, not for beautification, only for the uh, comfort and maintenance of the body, thinking thus I will get rid of old feelings of hunger without making new feelings of overeating. Thus I will be able to live comfortably and at ease, blamelessly and at ease, I think. So you know it has to be delicious, but why are you eating it? Okay, ah, now this is one of those really deep questions. Is there a difference between the jhana that the Buddha realized when he was a child and those ones that he realized by following other teachers prior to his enlightenment? I wouldn't say even difference, I think that before those other teachers, Alara Kalama, Uttakarama Puta, I don't think he did achieve any jhanas under those teachers. He said he got to Arupa states. These are not jhanas. Uh, they never call jhanas in the suttas. But then just quite, because the four Arupa states are based on the fourth jhana, then sometimes they're called you know, like jhanas. But that's not really how the Buddha taught it. But anyway, that's a, often talk about that, that when the Buddha um, was... Uh, in Mahasachika Sutta, he, rem he was just tried everything and never got anywhere close to enlightenment. But then he, re he remembered that the jhana which he um, got when he was a kid, while his father was doing the, uh, the plowing ceremony, he said, maybe that's the path to enlightenment. And then he realized, this is just quoting the sutta, he realized, yes, that is the path to enlightenment. He hadn't done that at all before, except in that time. He said, why am I afraid of that pleasure which is part of the jhanas? Because it has nothing to do you know, with the sensuality. And so he made a resolution, I will not be afraid. But he also noticed with the emaciated body which he had at that time, that it's difficult to get that uh, peace, tranquility of the jhanas with such an emaciated, weak body. So he started eating. And when he started eating, his friends, his first five disciples, thought he'd given up trying to become enlightened. And they abandoned him. And so he he became reasonably healthy, uh, got those jhanas again, and then became fully enlightened. The only sort of reasonable conclusion, which I've, we talked about this a lot with the other monks, was that those other teachers, Alarakalabhat and Uddhakarabhaputta, weren't doing the real um, Arupa states. Just like even these days, for quite a long time, that no one taught you jhanas. It was actually quite rebellious, you know, for monks and nuns to teach jhanas. And even in Vietnam, the United Buddhist Sangha, they made, yeah, United, that was Mahayana and uh, Theravada. Theravada down the south of Mahayana, central and northern parts of, of Vietnam. They made a resolution that monks should not teach jhanas to lay people. And that's true. And of course, they say something like that, 
And a monk like me said, if that's what you say, I'm going to teach. <laughs> Why not? So anyway, it was um, sometimes that once we started teaching jhanas, then a, a few uh, people, you know, they were actually senior uh, Vipassana teachers you know, from the United States, you know, they invited me for tea. And when I went there, they were quizzing me about jhanas. I said, wait, I thought you, you teach Vipassana. He said, yeah, but it's not working. <laughs> so we need to uh, increase our practice by doing some jhanas. But then what they were saying was what they called jhana light, L-I-T-E. Not the real jhana. Like you have like cafe light or something. It's not the real coffee, but just fake coffee. But <laughs> Anyway, they were teaching that, uh, thinking that that was good enough. And it wasn't a real thing. And I've seen that so often in the world that, you know, when you have something, the real thing is people actually, they want so hard to achieve that, they lower the standards. And I think that's pretty much what would have happened with um, Anudhakarama Puta by that time. And what they were actually teaching was not the real thing. Close, but not real. And it just happens. What happens is that, um, I mean, Alavakalama and Uttakalama Putta, why would they do that? Because they were just teaching what they were taught. Over the many years, one teacher teaches their disciples, their disciples teach their disciples, their disciples teach their disciples. Sometimes the standard, standards goes down. Look, simple things, like in universities. I remember reading... Um, Goethe and Dr. Faustus in that university at the time, they'd only give one PhD every about five or six years at most. Getting a PhD in that time was just, wow, you're a genius. But these days, they give out PhDs so easily. Even if you want a bachelor's degree, you can send $20 to some university in the United States and get one by return of post. Ah, that story. They do now. They realise their mistake. They thought it was going to be too troublesome. Troublesome. Yeah. I totally disagree with that, of course. But um, they made that decision and they kept it for a while. But it's, it's untenable. And lay people can do it. But if that's the way to enlightenment, then... Exactly. Yes, so. so just the, the monks and nuns can be enlightened, but the rest of you guys. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was ridiculous, but that's what happened. It was a long time ago, maybe I think 40, 50 years ago it was rescinded. Anyway, why... Can you suggest, whilst on retreat, my dreams are extra vivid and eventful? And why that may be the case is maybe you can relax more and there's just extra dreams coming up. Uh, but if you want to be more, maybe you're sleeping more, too much. Because <laughs> that's what usually happens, the dreams you get in the morning time. Sometimes they can be and eventful. Eventful is really good. I remember this guy, okay, which dream story shall I say? The, the guy who, um, I don't know if it was a dream or an imitator, you know, these visions you have. He was an Italian Buddhist. You've known him for a while. <laughs> Relax. <laughs> and early one morning he dreamt that he was a, a piece of spaghetti. <laughs> that strand of spaghetti. It was really weird. And I didn't really understand exactly what he was going through, but then the day afterwards, he dreamt he was a piece of macaroni. And then when I sort of 
uh, considered what he was going through. It just like uh, the insight really hit me. You know what he was doing? He was remembering his pastor lives. <laughs> I apologise. But I remember telling that in a. You know, I'll do this tomorrow. Some woman came up to me on the tube train in London when I was travelling there. <coughs> Were you there in the train at the time? You were okay. So she came and she started off, are you a, a Buddhist monk? Yeah, a real one. <laughs> yeah, there's some advert for some. Anyway, yeah, and so she wanted to know about Buddhism. So we had a little bit of a discussion and then she started to ask about reincarnation. So it's interesting, and I told her that story about this Italian fellow. And of course, you know, when I got to the punchline, she laughed, but then I looked up if you know London underground trains, people don't look at you. They don't have eye contact at all. If they're reading a newspaper, they just look at the newspaper. If they're using an iPhone, they're looking at an iPhone. But as soon as I cracked that button, <laughs> all the people in the coach looked above <laughs> their mobile phones. Half of them groaned, the other one laughed. But I did get a good re response to that joke. <laughs> So that's how to teach Buddhism on an underground train. <laughs> I'll do one more question because it's just two minutes. When doing mindfulness of breathing, my awareness of the in-breath is at my nostrils. My awareness of the out-breath is felt more strongly at my abdomen. Can I use both areas or should I choose one? Do better than choosing one. Choose none. Just watch the breath, not the nose, not the abdomen. When you teach meditation to people who have never done meditation before, it's so easy. Just close your eyes, watch three in-breaths, three out-breaths. They do that. And then afterwards I say, how did you know you were breathing in? How did you know you were breathing out? So I say, oh, you know. It's a very simple thing to know if you're breathing in and breathing out. But don't try and notice it at this place or that place. That keeps your... Um, body less prominent. You're watching the breath, not the body. It was very easy for me, and the reason was because I have hay fever. And so half the year, my nose was stuffed. They said, no, watch your breath at the tip of the nose. There's no breath there. <laughs> and then, of course, when you became a monk, you know, you started watching your breath at your abdomen. That never worked as well, especially this time of night. A young man, it's down here, next to my tummy. Oh, I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and then the solution was so obvious. You don't watch it at your nose or your belly. You just watch your breath, wherever that breath happens to be. Breathing in, breathing out. It makes it more simple. And I think I mentioned this on my, the last retreat, which we did here. That once, just as a matter of interest, I was watching my breath, you know, every breath in and out, no problem at all, nice and peaceful. But then I kind of wondered, yeah, I'm aware of my breath. Where am I being aware of it? And it was actually, it was on the tip of the nose. As soon as I said, well, where is this? I'm being aware of it. That's where it was. But I didn't have to be there at all. I was just, just watching the breath. Much more simple. And also much easier to do. Try it. Okay, it's nine o'clock now. So, I'll keep my promise. So, sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. I'm sorry for the bad jokes about pasta breasts. <laughs> okay, so now it's the first day. So, those of you who are tired, please go back and take a nice rest. And, those of, and get some nice dreams. See what you were like in your past life. <laughs> and then if you want to stay meditating, you can stay as long as you like. One thing here, we were talking about the schedules, and, but please don't take the schedules too seriously. That's not a joke, that's important. If you're having good meditation this evening, carry on. 
You don't have to get up at a certain time in the morning. That happened to me too often. You know, you'd be really energized in the evening because I better go to bed now because I've got to get up in the morning. I wasted a lot of meditation, good time that way. And sometimes thinking, you know, in the, in the evening you're really tired, go to bed and get up early if you want to. Look after your body. You don't have to sit for one hour. It's, oh, it's one hour meditation, then we've got a walk meditation. No. You meditate as long as you feel really good. You're getting very peaceful. Carry on. Sometimes when you go for lunch, you eat a lot. Sometimes you only eat a little. You're sensitive to what your body needs. Same with your meditation. You're sensitive to what your body needs and your mind needs. So the times you just carry on meditating. Have wonderful times. You can sleep in in the morning, no problem. Is that clear? Mm -hmm. Oh, good, excellent. Okay, good night.